last week we began a series uh, called Freedom, and we're uh, in the book of Galatians, if you wanted to turn there with me or swipe there. <clears throat> and we're talking about freedom, and freedom is something that is near and dear to all of our hearts. Freedom is a, is a massive cultural longing. Um, it's, uh, we're hearing a lot about freedom, and uh, this being an, an election year, of course, and so it's coming from, from um, political pundits and, and whatnot. The, freedom is such a, a cultural longing, and whether it's in our songs or in our art or um, from, from the political realm, we're, we're hearing about freedom. And so we know that it's something that is lo- a longing within every human heart to experience greater freedom. And we're told from different sources, like, what freedom looks like. You know, um, if, 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 it were, if it were Oprah this morning talking with you, she might, she might tell you what? Like, where does freedom come from? Well, well, freedom, to experience freedom, you need to follow your heart. You know, Oprah would tell you to follow your heart. But we, we, know, um, we know what's in there. <laughs> we know that, um, we know that from, from Scripture, we're told that the heart is, the human heart is the most uh, deceptive place on the face of the planet earth and I don't want I, I know what's in there I, why would why would I want to follow the most deceptive place on planet earth I'm, I, I think I've given up on following my heart I don't, I don't really feel like following my heart from now on I, I feel like following my heart only ends up back where it started me and that's not where I want to end up <laughs> So we can't find freedom there. A lot of times the things that we look to for freedom only end up causing us to become more enslaved than when we first started out. You know, it's the, it's the addict pattern. It's just one more drink. It's going to set me free. You feel free. And in the morning, you, you don't feel as free, do you? You feel like more in bondage than you were the night before when you drank. So a lot of times the things that we think bring us freedom only end up enslaving us uh, even more. And so what Paul is writing about in Galatians is he's writing basically a, a, a manifesto, a letter on liberty, on freedom, and how God views freedom, and how it's God's heart to set us free. Why? Because uh, he wants us to do stuff for him? No. God is not setting us free because he wants you to do something for him. God's setting you free because he loves freedom. God's setting you free because he is free. Oswald Chambers wrote this um, devotional some of you might be familiar with. It's called My Utmost for His Highest. And um, I've just come to love it over the years. And he says this, He says, today Jesus Christ is being dispatched as the figurehead of a religion, a mere example. He is that, but he's infinitely more. He is salvation itself. He is the the gospel of God. Jesus is the gospel of God. And today, we're going to set 
set some context for what's happening here. We're going to be in Galatians 1 for Jesus being the gospel who ushers in freedom. And what's happening in the book of Galatians is this. Paul has written a letter to the churches that he's planted in the region of Galatia. Galatia is not a country. It's a region, so there's multiple churches that are happening here. And then Paul plants the churches, and then he skedaddles to plant more churches. And um, what happens in this area that would be like modern-day Turkey is that false teachers, or what Paul, who Paul describes as troublemakers, come in and start to add to the gospel that Paul has preached and these people have received. And so these people come in and they start teaching what Paul is going to call a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And that's what we're going to dig at today. It's going to be Galatians 1, 6 through 24, but there's, we're just, we're going to stop about midway through and there's a few uh, key verses that we're going to cue in on this morning. So in verse 6, Paul writes this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than The one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Verse 10, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Let's pause there for a minute. Paul says that he's astonished that the Galatians are so quickly moving away from the gospel that was received just a short time ago, by Paul himself. Astonishment is like a, kind of like a proper British word that's not really in the text. It's like, the Greek word is like, he's kind of ticked off. He's like really, he's really distressed that this church that he planted is so quickly deserting the, the gospel which they received. So quickly after his original preaching to them, after the arrival of the opponents in Galatia. Either way, it's like Paul's echoing Exodus 32.8, where we read that they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have, been, have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Or in Deuteronomy 9.16, when I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God and had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You have turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're, it's not like, this isn't like a flashy kind of sermon. This, this might be, some of you might say, this is the most boring elementary sermon that I've ever heard 
in my life, and that's okay too. We can talk later. But um, it's, it's not going to be flashy. It's going to be simple. It's going to be about the gospel. We're going to get at what the gospel means. What does it mean? What does it mean when Paul writes about the gospel? And we're going to get at it from a couple, couple different angles. The first angle we're going to get after it from is, well, what are the marks of this different gospel that's being taught to the Galatians? What are the marks of a different gospel? And then we're going to talk about what are the marks of the true gospel? So you can see it's not very, like, in-depth or... You know, I always like to think of the Word of God as like not a science experiment trying to like pick it apart because God's a person, right? You can't like pick him apart like he's some sort of science experiment. So we're just going to let God breathe on the Word this morning and see what happens in that respect. But the first thing that I'm called uh, into attention of is this thing in verse 6 where he's, where Paul says that, a, that a different gospel is called through additions to Christ alone, which is really no gospel at all in the, in the beginning of verse 7. A different gospel is marked by additions. Additions to Christ alone. Now, some additions are consistent with the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are lots of things in the, in the contemporary church, in our church today, that we do that doesn't undermine the message at all. For example, we have kids' church going on in the back. You're aware of this because all of those little kids just marched in triumphantly and so we have kids' church, and we, we do that every Sunday. I challenge anyone in the Bible or anyone in the house this morning to find a verse that explicitly commands us to having kids' church. It doesn't. The Bible does not tell us to have kids' church, but yet we do it. Does that undermine the gospel? No, it does not. This is another illustration. You can celebrate Christmas there's nothing about the celebration of Christmas in December in the Bible. In fact, it was probably pretty hot when Jesus was born, not cold, and probably not in December. <laughs> but you still do it. You can do it. And it's not inconsistent with the gospel. Yes? Yes. But there are some, <laughs> okay. but there are some additions that strike at the core of the faith that will destroy the church if the church embraces these things. What I'm trying to say is that some additions actually subtract. If your spouse or your roommate or your friend serves you a cup of coffee and just adds a little bit of poison to the coffee, just a little addition, no big thing, just a couple of drops of poison, <laughs> or you're eating cereal in the morning, like Luca and Winnie, my kids, every morning they come down, Cereal, we're hungry, blah, blah, blah. you know, we've got a nine and a, a seven-year-old, and every morning, it never fails. They wake up sleepy-eyed, you know, they get out of bed, and they tromp down the stairs and thank the Lord they're doing it by themselves now. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're asking for cereal every morning. They get cereal every morning. And say dad comes down and says, okay, I'll give you some cereal, 
And, I, and as I'm pouring the cereal, I add just a couple of pieces of gravel in the cereal. That's no big thing, is it? Just a few pieces of gravel, not that much. Some additions subtract. And the mark of the false gospel is adding to Christ in a way that subtracts from the finished work of Christ. Tim Keller is the pastor at um, Redeemer Church in New York City in, in Manhattan. And he gives a really helpful illustration. He said, in the liberal church today, someone might come up to you and say that it's great that you feel like you're born again. That's great. Wonderful. We have no problem with that. I just want to add one little thing to what you believe. Don't say that good people with no religion or good people in other religions can't get to God. Don't insist that people have to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't insist that people have to in any way appreciate or believe in Jesus' death on the cross as the atonement for sin. Just one little thing. But is it a little thing to say, if you are good enough, God will accept you? No. That's a huge thing that destroys the gospel because the gospel is not just for good people. Thank the Lord that the gospel is not just for good people. You see, every system in the world says that the good people get in, but the bad people are kept out. But in the gospel, God says, I'm welcoming everyone, good people and bad people. See, the gospel is good news. It's not just good advice. Advice is something that when you hear it, you've got to do it. See where I'm going? News is something that has already happened. The gospel does not say, here is something that you need to do. The gospel tells us about something that has already been done. Christ has already accomplished your salvation at the cross. Just one little addition. In some extreme Pentecostal churches, they say, well, there's one little thing that you need to do to really be acceptable to God. You need to speak in tongues. Some conservative evangelical churches say there's just one little thing. You want to be a full member of the body of Christ? Don't smoke cigarettes and don't drink. Just one little thing. But that's not what I read in here. Paul also says that this different gospel throws us into confusion. Throws us into confusion. That's a mark of the the false gospel, is that it stirs something up inside of us. It it throws us into confusion. And as I was reading this week, I kind of felt like this was like a word for our church family. The staff and I are going through this book. It's called The Invitation to Silence, to Solitude and Silence. It's a really great book. And uh, so far, I'll let you know how it turns out when we're done. But it's a really great book so far. And in the first chapter, this, the author is meeting with a spiritual director. She's at a time in her life where all this chaos is happening. And she, she feels like she's got no peace in her life. And she's a pastor on staff somewhere. Life is spinning out of control. And so as she's like spilling all this to the spiritual director, the spiritual director just like stops her and says, hold on a second. I just, like, I have this picture for you, and it's of this, like, mason jar. And in the mason jar is, like, a riverbed. 
and your life, it's just like shaken up. You know, it's like, so it's, it's shaken up and you have no peace because the, the mason jar is like, sh- is like being shaken and the gravel and sediment is everywhere. You need, to, you need to let that mason jar rest. Just let it rest on the table so that the sediment can fall, the, the gravel can fall back down into place and you can get some clarity. You know, all the sediment might not fall down and you have crystal clear water, but you, at least you'll be able to see it for what it is. You know, you'll be able to have some peace and it's not just shaking all over. See, that's the mark of a false gospel is that it, it ushers in confusion and insecurity to our souls. The false gospel says that you, don't, you can't trust the thing that you received at first. It makes you question. Questioning God, not a bad thing. Do it. He's a big boy. He can handle all your doubts and then some. But questioning the thing that you receive deep down inside, don't do it. It might be the, it might be the mark that you, what you received is the false gospel. Just saying. If the thing that you're engaging in is not leading you to greater freedom, it's not the gospel. God's design is that we should be free from confusion. You see, God is always bringing his freedom closer to the center. And these false teachers in Galatia were introducing confusion into the hearts of the churches. The Greek word here for confusion means a mingling or a mixing. You see where the mason jar word kind of makes sense? A mixing or a mingling. That's what that word means, confusion. The pure strain of the gospel introduces more freedom to our souls, not less. Anything that is mixed in simply confuses us because we know deep down that Jesus, who is preached to us, simply says we are saved by grace through faith. That's it, period. There's this agitation that's happening in the Galatian church. It's, there's, it's, an, it's a stirring of the waters and agitation Something's just not quite sitting right in their spirits. It's confusing to them. And Paul is saying, hey, if the bottle of the gospel of Jesus is being shaken into something that it is not, let those guys be accursed. And Paul's saying this about himself, too. He's saying, because he says, I'm the one who brought it to you. So if it were me, if it were angels, whoever it is, let those guys be accursed. Let them be condemned. Because it's Jesus plus nothing. Even if an angel of heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. So what are marks of the gospel then? Well, the first thing is that I see here is in verse 10. And we read in verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Ain't that the truth? So the question here, I felt like God was stirring in my soul this week as as I was reading and, and preparing was, who, who, who am I trying to please? 
Who are you trying to please? The most thrilling implication of this verse, personally for me, is the absoluteness of Christ's lordship into glorious liberation, into freedom. This sets me free. It sets me free. The gospel sets us free. It's a humbling thing. Let's stay with that. It's humbling. Why is it humbling? It's humbling because it frees us from having to worry about pleasing one person here and another person there. It brings unity and integrity to our lives. When you live to only please one person, everything you do is integrated because it relates to that one person. You see? So any question, should I go and see this movie? Should I read this book? Should I make this purchase? Should I take this job? Should I go out on this date? Should I marry this person? What a freeing thing it is to know that there is just one person who is to be pleased in every decision of our lives, Jesus. And sometimes pleasing him will please others, and sometimes it won't. And that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt when we don't live up to other people's expectations when we've been living for them. But the deep joy of a single-minded life is that it's worth everything. There's freedom. It's humbling. You see, because before, you, it's hum, here's why it's humbling. Because before you, you lived with, another way to ask this question of whom are you trying to please is who is on the throne of your life? Because before you signed up to follow Jesus, whether that was 50 years ago or five minutes ago, you were living as if you were the center of your life. You're at the center of the universe. And that's the way it is in culture today. You know that you are, you are the center of your own universe, the, the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. They all revolve around you. You're your own God. You command your destiny. You know, make sure your profile pic looks super good, and then you stick it right on there for everybody to see. Looking great. I'm at the center of my own universe. I control what goes on my newsfeed. I control which friends are friends with me and which friends I unfriend and friend and unfriend and disfriend and you're my friend, you're not my friend. But it's all about you anyway, isn't it? You are at the center of your universe. That's what, that's what it was like before God introduced freedom into your heart. Who is on the throne of your life this morning? Or another question would be is, where, what po- if you picture yourself before the throne of God, what posture are you in? Are you in a posture of prostration where you're down on the floor before the throne of God? Is your posture one of, you know, walking away from God? Is your posture of one of on your knees with open hands? Is your posture more of like, I don't know. Where are you at? before the Father this morning? Who is on the throne of your life? The gospel is a humbling thing because it exalts no one else in your life but the person of Jesus. 
Don't you see out in, in culture, everyone is out to exalt themselves. I'm at the center of the universe. These people should cater to my needs. Or at best, it extends to my kids. I'm looking out for my kids, but I don't care about the kids down the street who live on less than a dollar a day and are going hungry because of lack of after-school programs in our city. Good hearts saying, I care about more than just my kids. And if we, you were honest with me, and if I was honest with you, I'd say, I don't care about those kids like I should. At best, my kids. At worst, not past my own nose. You know, but when God came into our lives, he began to move his freedom towards the center of our hearts. And that's a freeing thing to be displaced from the throne of your life. It might hurt to be displaced from the throne of your life, but it fulfills you. And nothing else can satisfy and fulfill you but the presence of Jesus at the very center of your heart. You may look for it in other places, in the glorification of yourself, in your successes at work, in in the successes or failures of your kids. But we weren't designed to live off of that nourishment. It's simply junk food. All of that stuff is junk food. The real nourishment is the person in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's a humbling thing to say, I'm not going to exalt anyone in my life except for the person of Jesus in me. And it's so freeing, isn't it? When you do receive, when you do receive the good stuff of life, it's so freeing to, to, to step into that place knowing that you didn't do anything to get yourself there. That's the way it works in the kingdom. You don't, you don't promote yourself to get ahead. I have to. I have to have a Facebook page. I have to. I have to. I have to keep up. I have to. I have to text this person. I've got to keep up. I've got to keep up. If I don't, I'll be lost in the, my business won't survive. I've got to do that. I was just talking with a business owner this morning after first service, and they were saying how their perspective on being a business owner has completely changed over this past year. And seeing God as the business owner and not themselves as the business owner. You know, this sweet entrepreneurial spirit, this couple, you know, God owns our business. I'm like, man, that is great. I'm like cheering them on. That's so good to hear. God doesn't own just 10% of your business. God owns all of it. It's so freeing when we receive the good things of life and we know we didn't do anything to get ourselves to position ourselves there because let me tell you this let me tell you this what you what you achieve through self promotion you're going to have to maintain through self promotion and that's tricky business there wouldn't you rather wouldn't you rather have god promote you wouldn't you rather highlight, wouldn't you rather have god highlight your life to others to bring favor and usher favor into to your life than have to work for it on your own? It's a humbling thing, but it's a fulfilling thing. Who am I trying to please? Verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sis- sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. Verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. 
Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. I love how God created us. Our design is that we receive from him through revelation. The key phrase there is, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. We don't receive from him as experts who have everything figured out. We don't receive from him like grown-ups receive. We receive through revelation. He gives. He always reveals. He's the revealer. We become like little children, and that is the intersection of revelation. That's where we get revelation. That's where we get revelation is we receive because we've become like little children. If we come to God with our good deeds or the things we try to do to get revelation, we'll be frustrated every time. We ask God to reveal himself. Yes, God, show us what you're like. Show us who you really are, Jesus. Speak to us. And he's faithful to us to do that. He shows us to himself as we're willing to receive. Sometimes he speaks to us when we don't want him to. Sometimes he reveals himself to us and we don't want him to. We don't want him to put his finger on that something that he wants us to give up. He reveals himself in a number of different ways, through his word, through dreams, through other people coming into our lives. But notice how Paul doesn't say, I received from Jesus the gospel by doing so many good deeds, by tithing so much money. God can't be bought into revelation. We can't bend God's ear by giving any more or any less. We have God's attention whether we choose to give him our hearts or not. We receive as he chooses, not as we do. In Matthew, he says this. At at that time, Jesus answered them. These are the Lord's words, not mine. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babies. Ah, so good. Revealed. Revelation comes to babies Revelation comes through babies, too. A good question to ask would be, God, would you show me the places I'm not becoming like a child in the ways that I approach you? You see, oftentimes the reason we don't receive from God is because we're trying to flip the relational dynamic on God. That's a dangerous game. God doesn't need me to father him. He's quite good at fathering. He's the best father. He's the most loving father. He's the most caring father. He's the father that won't leave. He's the father that keeps his promises. He's the father that shows up. He's he's the father that ushers in goodness into my life. He's the father that is generous. He's the father that looks out for me and provides for me. He's the father that I cry to. He's the father that hears me. Now, he's so good. He's not like earthly dads. He's altogether different. But fatherhood is something that he set up to to show us what he's like. So we're to get all jacked up to the point that we're like, you know what, God, I think I can father you. Because do you know in not so many ways we say that to God in our hearts. We say say that we, we... In not so many ways, in the ways that we live our lives, we're trying to flip the relational dynamic on God and trying to father him. And that's just not going to play with him. It just won't play. Whenever we try to flip a relational dynamic, it won't work with him. 
It's freeing to say, you are the father and I am the child. It's a really freeing thing that, to say that I don't need to father you, God. You don't need me to try and father you. You simply want me to become like a child again and ask in faith for the things I need. I receive because you reveal. Be weary of that place when you have everything figured out. The way to advance in the kingdom is to become like a little child. The way to advance in the kingdom is is to say, I don't have everything figured out. What a freeing thing over the past year or so in my role here. It's been for me to say, you know what? I'm not Bible answer man. I cannot be Bible answer man for you, for you, for you, for you, for you. Will you experience me as father in some way? Sure. But I cannot be, I cannot be Bible answer man for you. I don't, I, we're, it's, Listen, we're all in the same boat. I'm just like you. I don't have any solutions or answers. I don't even know why you're here this morning. (laughs) Just trying to figure it out, trying to trying to hear from God the Father, trying to trying to not father other people, trying to let him father other people, trying to trying to hear from from God his affirmation over what what he's doing in this church just like you. We receive. That's who we are. We're children. We receive from him. We're not the revealers. We're the receivers. And so oftentimes in our lives we try to flip that relational dynamic. When he just simply wants us to become like a child again and ask in faith for the things that we need. I receive because you reveal, Lord. You decide, Lord, when is best, where is best, why is best, and who is best for me. You know best for me, Father, not me. You don't know. You you don't know what's best for you, we've said before here on Sundays. You do not know what is best for you. And that's why people choose the Oprah (laughs) slogan, just to follow my heart, because we don't know best. So it might just follow what's in there. I mean, that's the next best option. You and I don't know what's best for us, let alone our kids, other people in our small group, other people out on the street, strangers. We don't know what's best for them. What we're really saying, if we do say we know what's best for them, is... If you say, I know what's best for you, what you're really saying is that you would be a whole lot better if you were more like me. And then we catch ourselves and we say, oh, wait, that's control. I'm touching on some control freaks right now. I realize that. When we say, your life would go, because that's what we're saying in our hearts, whether we say it to our kids in not so many ways or our spouse or whatever, whether we're trying to fix our spouse or whatever we're trying to do, what we're saying is we're saying it would be a whole lot better for us if you were more like me. Because if you operated in the way that was more like me, well, then we would be at peace. But since I can't do that, I'll settle for tolerance, living with you. You see? Some of you are tracking with me this morning. <laughs> if I can't, you know, and that's like, and that's held up as good in our society. 
If we can't control other people, we'll settle for, to- settle for tolerance. But ideally, it would be good if I ran the world. That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. Ideally, things would be great. The drastic number of, uh, the, the, the number of idiots in this world would drastically <laughs> decrease if the world worked out the way that I saw it working out. Good Christian sitting in your chair saying, oh, I would never. Oh, you do it every day. You do it every day. Come on. Let's just be real. <laughs> now, God reveals. We receive. He doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve, but he looks, us, looks at us like he, he looks at Jesus. You see, the revelation of God's love and his character came through a son. He's modeling. Father is modeling there. It comes through a son. came through a child, a little baby. God's revelation didn't come through a powerful, victorious army. It didn't come through some wealthy power couple. No, God chose to reveal himself in the form of a helpless baby boy. That's the way revelation comes. Revelation of God's character lands on the helpless. It's a nugget. On the childlike, on the weak, our dependence on him is crucial to receiving his revelation. As we depend on him, he reveals to us what he's really like. As we strive and we begin to try to flip the dynamic, we begin to say, I'm my own man or woman. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I can take care of myself. We cannot receive revelation from him or of him if we are not committed to becoming childlike again. The most vulnerable in our society are those little ones back there. That's it. I'm not listening to you. I've only only got a little bit more to say. Shh. Okay. Okay. (laughs) A little affirmation there. That's good. Uh, You know, any revelation we have of God's kindness, his goodness in Jesus is a provision. His provision as the gift of God. We can never do anything to position ourselves better as a recipient. That's the whole deal. We can't do our way into the grace of God. That's not the way that you came in. You didn't come in earning your way. You didn't come in paying your way. We can't earn his revelation. We can't manage his revelation. His revelation of himself to us is strictly based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Jesus said yes so that we would simply receive. Not have to do things to earn God's smile. Jesus plus nothing. His revelation. God is not, this is another way to put it. God is not a television who can be turned on and off with a remote control. God's not an app that we can open and close whenever we want to see what he's like. God is a person who chooses to reveal himself on his terms. We don't get to choose. We're the receiver. We're not the the revealer. And his terms are that we simply be open to receiving. That's it. We don't take revelation. We don't earn revelation. We simply receive revelation. Last one. The mark of the true gospel is God's grace. I know this seems elementary, and I know it seems like cookies are on the lower shelf 
for us this morning. But be leery of a place when you've moved on from the simple grace of God, from the elementary fact. Wasn't it the, shaker, the shakers who had that hymn who sang, "'Tis a gift to be simple." "'Tis a gift to be simple." Let's not be so quick to move on from the simple grace of God. A mark of the true gospel is God's grace. In verse 15, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. He's talking about his conversion on the road to Damascus. Do you remember? Paul's on the road to Damascus, and then Jesus shows up and knocks him off of his horse and blinds him. Why are we called? Why did, why did God call you through the gospel? We often say, especially in a world filled with disasters, like the flooding in Baton Rouge, why them? When tragedy strikes us, we ask, why me? Sometimes we'll even add, you know, I didn't deserve this. I didn't bring this on myself. Why did this happen? People who have experienced God's inbreaking. His effectual calling through the gospel say the exact same thing. Have you ever come into contact with someone who the grace of God is deeply embedded into their lives and into their souls? You know, the grace of God has come to be uh, defined in the American church as unmerited favor. But the Greek word for grace is more akin or synonymous to charm or beauty. Now, I'm not talking about beauty or charm that the way that the world defines it. But have you ever co- come into contact with a person and, and you look in their eyes and there's like a sparkle in their eye? And, and you feel clean when you're around them? You walk into their presence and, you, and you're like, dang, I just took a shower? I mean, not literally. I don't know how far that illustration plays out. Okay, everyone. Um, you know what I'm talking about? You know, when you come into contact with a person that the gospel has gotten in there so deep that you feel like you've hung out with Jesus, you're like, what the crap? That person, that twinkle in their eye, that you've come into contact with the charis, the grace, the beauty, the charm of Jesus. People who have experienced God's grace, God's charis, his his beauty, say the exact same thing. Why me? You know, you know, God, that I'm a person who twists things to suit myself. If we were really honest, you and I, and we had to sit down one-on-one, we would tell one another that, wouldn't we, Vineyard Cleveland? We would say that we, we twist things to suit ourselves. We do that. Why would you break into my life, God? I'm a person who's really selfish. If you and I sat down one-on-one and we had a talk, we'd be really open and honest and vulnerable with one another, and we'd tell each other the truth. I'm really selfish. Why, God? Why would you come to me, God? I multiply idols so quickly. My heart strays from you, God, so easily. If you and I were to sit down one-on-one and have a talk, we'd be really open and honest with one another. And we'd say like, man, I multiply idols in my life all the time. I set up statues in my life that can't bring me food or nourishment. I set up sources of water that are 
our dirty wells that, that can't contain water, that leak. I set up idols all the time. I know I'm not a seeker after you, God. Why would you come and seek me out? It's like that old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And how I long for that to be a cry from Vineyard Cleveland. You know that one line where the hymn writer says, I'm prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. Do you feel that in your heart as you go about your day? Does that govern your lives? Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I feel it. And when we're honest with one another, and, we, and we're honest and live authentically before God, and we say, I'm prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. That's the point where God reveals his compassion and his grace through us. Because it's at that point when we say, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. It's at that point when we stop judging the guy who cheats on his wife and start loving him. It's at that point we stop judging the homeless drug addict down on West 25th and start loving him. It's at that point we stop judging the woman who shops too much and is addicted to shopping and having the newest clothes and start loving them. I'm prone to wander. I'm just like you. I'm prone to wander. I feel it in there. You know what Paul is saying here? is that the gospel is not <laughs> the gospel is not a salvation factory the gospel is not a salvation factory where you just say a prayer and stamp one out there's another one there's another one i got this picture i was talking to this guy this morning he just got a job at the ford plant and he works at the assembly line you know the gospel of god is not an assembly line. My friend is not stamping out salvations. You know, that's not what Jesus set out the gospel to be. Likewise, it's not a system of things to do to be good, or it's not a way to be not bad. <laughs> that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not a way for you to not be bad. This is what the gospel is. We've said what it's marked by. We've said what a false gospel is marked by. Here's the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. It's not advice on how to live your life one way or not live it. It's the announcement that Jesus is King. He's God and Lord over all. And that he was crucified on a cross and became sin for you and I. It wasn't to show us that God loves us. It was to forgive us of our sins. And then he was, he was, he was put in the ground. He was put in a tomb. And he was stone cold dead for three days. He wasn't coming back. He was gone. There was no frame of reference for a resurrection in first century Israel. When you were dead, that was it. But then the father reached down with his hand and he, and he raised him up to life again. 
saying that the work of the cross, the forgiveness of sins, you don't have to come in through animal sacrifices anymore. Isn't that good news? You don't have to go back to Berea and slaughter a lamb and bring it back to Vineyard Cleveland to get close to God. You don't even need me up here talking to you right now. The temple veil has been torn in two. There's access to the Father. You can go directly to him. It's not temporary access. It's eternal access. So that means that at any moment during your point in the day, whether it's 3 a.m. and you've got a headache, or it's 2 p.m. and you're celebrating a baby shower, God is with you. His presence rests in you and on you so that when you breathe, he breathes inside of you. You carry around the presence of Jesus inside of your chest to release life to people around you. The favor and smile of God are on your life. That's the gospel. And that he's calling you into family. That you don't have to do life alone. That you're now in. You're not on the outside of the glass looking in, for, looking in from outside. You're inside. You've got access. The temple veil is torn in two. You don't have to act like. You don't have to feel like. You don't have to believe like you're an outsider any longer. You've got the goods. You carry them inside of your chest. That's the gospel. Not a salvation factory or a way to not be bad. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is the Lord and that you belong. Why don't you join me in standing?